0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast.
1: Hello, and thanks for listening. I'm your host, Elise Schaefer, and today I'm joined by Alan Hoover and Fito Von Sastro, two passionate Rubyists on a mission to improve developer happiness and productivity. Alan and Fito are both Bay Area transplants, Alan from Seattle, Washington, and Fito from Asuncion, Paraguay. They've worked together for 10 years, including nearly five years at Cisco Meraki, probably the largest Rails shop you've never heard of. Fido and Alan are frequent RubyConf and RailsConf speakers on topics ranging from software complexity to resolving flaky specs. When they're not hanging out together, and even when they are, Alan enjoys music, photography, and writing. Fido enjoys hiking, basketball, and video games. Welcome both of you to the show.
2: Thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: So we kind of got connected at RubyConf back in November, where Alan, you gave a talk on flaky tests. What inspired that talk? What made you want to give a talk on that at RubyConf?
0: Yeah, I did. It was called The Secret Ingredient. And it was inspired really by the challenges we faced repeatedly over and over again at various companies. Cisco Meraki, we actually had quite a challenge with flaky tests for a period of time. And I just got to the point where I'm like, darn it, I'm just going to figure this out and then I'm going to share it.
1: It's nice when you have something that you can share with other people like that. And you and Fito, both of you have done joint talks at previous conferences, too. Can you talk about maybe some of the topics that you've covered in those talks? Yeah,
2: we've given talks about software complexity, particularly about how to keep an eye out for it and how to recognize when complexity is starting to make its way into your code base and some techniques to undo some of the complexity once you've felt the pain of living with that complexity. I love that talk. It's
0: called A Brewer's Guide to Filtering Out Complexity and Churn. We take a coffee machine application and make it super complex and really dumb. And then we go back and show you where the complexity snuck in and then how to remove it, how to get it out of there for good. Talks a lot about polymorphism and that particular talk doesn't really cover testing as much. We kind of hand wave over that because it's like a half an hour talk and not enough time for testing. But yeah, it's one of my favorite talks. Same.
1: These seem like they are related topics though, right? Software complexity and testing seem like they're not the same topic, but they feed into each other, I think. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that as a theme for the talks that you've given.
0: I think the underlying theme is developer happiness. Flaky tests are the bane of every developer's existence. We hate them. We all hate them. They happen to all of us. So how can we actually spend our work cycles fixing them and getting them off of our plate? And the same with complexity. People get into a situation with software complexity where they don't even know that it's there, but they feel like everything's so slow to work on and so hard to make a change. When you start with Rails new, you are moving quick. You start really quick and somewhere along the line flips and now you're moving really slowly. And so if we can show you where that happened, how it happened and how to remove it, we're just hoping to make your life easier and make you happier and get back to that flow state that you had beginning when everything was new. These two topics
2: overlap the fact that if you have complex code, it is probably harder to test it, more painful to write tests for that code. And you're probably more likely to introduce flaky or brittle tests for complex code. So yeah, they definitely fit into each other and are both about feeling productive. And you might feel like you're losing the ability to get features out the door as fast as you used to as your application grows, be it because now you have more tests and all of a sudden they're failing for no reason, or because your code gets increasingly harder to work with. Those are both things that we've encountered in various code bases. And the larger the code base, the more likely it seemed that people would run into those issues. Meraki, we have about 110,000 RSpec tests.
1: Wow.
0: Even if a half of a percent of tests are flaky, that's a serious problem for us. Mm-hmm. So we built some custom software and custom dashboards around running our builds frequently, even off hours and looking to see which tests fail repeatedly and which tests appear to fail sometimes and not other times. So that when we come in in the morning, we're like, okay, here's today's list of flaky tests. Let's go fix these. And it has had a significant impact on our ability to move f- faster. Fido commits code more often than I do, but I have here anecdotally, that it's a lot better than it was. It's just because we've thought about how they fail and thought about what to do about it, come up with some creative ideas about how to discover them more quickly.
2: That's maybe half the battle, being able to detect them sooner and making people aware that they might have inadvertently introduced a flaky test. But the other half is, I think, partially what inspired your talk on and is to help people recognize that they might be introducing these flaky tests before they even check it in so as they're working with tests like these are some patterns that you might want to keep an eye out for or as you yourself are running your tests if you notice certain things oh this might be an indication that there's potentially a flaky test there so that educational component is very important because you can have all sorts of tooling that will tell you when something is failing or that might, for example, mute or remove a test that's flaky. But if you have hundreds of developers writing tests every day, it's a losing battle. Like even if you have a team dedicated to fixing them, the only real solution is socializing the learnings you've done and teaching other people.
1: I feel like there's a lot to kind of unpack there. But one of the things that I do want to touch on is that you had mentioned about like developer happiness. And I think This has been a little bit of a theme on some of the episodes recently where we've talked about just various parts of Ruby, the language and the tools and the community caring so much about developer happiness and productivity. And I think for many of us, we've worked in code bases where we felt the things that you're talking about, you start out and it's so fast and you can just move so quickly. Then you have to do one complex thing, but you don't have time to like really think about what the right abstraction is, or you don't know what the right abstraction is. And then you don't have time later to come back and refactor it. I think that that is a common thing that people experience. And so figuring out how to combat that, how to help developers solve that problem and build software more effectively. And I think testing is a pretty important part of that, right? We've talked a little bit about flaky tests, but can you talk about why would a test be flaky? What are some of the reasons why a test might be flaky?
0: Sure. All flaky tests have one thing in common, and that is they make an invalid assumption about the environment in which they are running. So literally, you can apply that sentence to any flaky test. They assume different things, and they fail for different reasons. In my talk, I cover three. There's non-determinism. There is order dependence, and there are race conditions. A non-deterministic test failure is something that when you run the code one time, it produces one answer. When you run it again, it produces a different answer, either because you're using the system clock or you're using random numbers or some other random portion of the system. A web connection, for example, is kind of random. You don't know whether it's going to be up or down. And so how do you make the tests deterministic when the code is non-deterministic? And mostly the answer there is mocking. You want to mock the random thing and make sure the test is going to always see the same result, even though the code itself is going to produce different results. Order dependence is when one test runs and modifies the contents of the environment in a way that makes the next test that runs blows up the environment for that next test. And so the test that fails is not actually the test with the problem. The first one is modifying the environment. That's a problem, but it doesn't cause it to fail. So you don't even see it. The second one is causing the build to fail, but you can't necessarily look at the test and figure out why because it runs fine in isolation. And so the answer there is for finding it and trying to debug it, you can use RSpec dash dash random to run the tests in random orders. And then once you find a seed that consistently reproduces the failure, you can run it through RSpec dash dash bisect and pass it that seed. And it will essentially run every permutation of the tests in that group of tests until it finds the permutation that always produces that failure. Usually it's just a single test that causes the other test to fail, but sometimes it can be a complex mix of tests that cause the one to fail. Once you understand that, how those two tools work, RSpec random and RSpec bisect, order dependence gets a whole lot easier to solve. It takes forever to solve it because set up the random and it has to run over and over again until you find the right seed. And then bisect because You might want to run random, not until you find a seed that works, but until you find a seed that the number of tests that run before the failure is small, because that will significantly speed up the bisect process because you only need to pass it those tests that ran before the failure. So that's order dependence. And then race conditions are exactly what they sound like. You've got to change. One place you could see this is like file I.O. or stream I.O., where you're writing to some kind of I.O., And one test might write to it. Another test might be trying to write to it in a different way or read from it differently. And because it's asynchronous and you're probably running on a build server that's running in multiple threads or multiple processes, even that IO might be in the wrong state when the second test runs because the first test ran kind of an order dependence thing, but not really because it's more of an asynchronous thing, right? You've got a test that's running, they might actually be running at the same time and getting a write and a read mixed up between the two tests. And Ruby has this fantastic little trick that you can do with the IO kinds of race conditions, which is to use an object called string IO to stand in for the file IO or the stream of bits that you're writing to. It works just like a file. You have to rewind it to start over before you do the validation of what got written. But yeah, I cover all of that in the talk. Much more detail, probably a little bit easier to understand. There probably are others that I haven't figured out yet, but those are three major ways that we've run into flakiness. So non-determinism, order dependence, and race conditions.
1: So when I'm thinking about those, non-determinism seems to be maybe the easiest one to fix because you just mock the world outside around you to create yeah. determinism, but mm-hmm. for an order dependence seems like it's a little bit more complicated and then race condition seems like the most complicated. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Absolutely. Yes.
1: Okay. And also you mentioned the talk and we've talked about the talk from RubyConf. We're actually going to put that in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, you can find that in the show notes. It was an excellent talk. You should go and check it out. So I am curious, you said you had a lot of tests. You said 110 over
0: 110,000
1: yeah. tests. And You have some subset of them are flaky. Where did you start to tackle that problem?
0: Well, a couple of things. One, we brought in some folks to teach us good RSpec practices. We didn't have as much test coverage as we wanted at first. And since then, our test coverage has exploded since the training. But with the explosion of tests, came additional flakiness that caused more delays, more time waiting on the build server. And when we got started on trying to resolve the flakiness, We use a product called Team City from JetBrains as our build server. It has a flaky test dashboard that will tell you which tests it thinks are flaky. And it has the ability to mute a test, which I'm not exactly a big fan of. What it does is it lets the test run, but it ignores the result of that particular test. And so the way we're working right now is we're using our own software, our own process to run the build hundreds of times overnight. Uh, we have a very large farm of build servers. They're not doing anything at night. So we just pick a shaw and we run that SHA over and over again at night so that we can, in the morning, look at a dashboard and see, oh, these are the tests that failed intermittently overnight. And so we know that now to go look at those. Everybody's watching my talk and learning how to decipher, once they see a failure, how to decipher it. So that the formal process that we use is, Once a test has been identified as flaky, we mute it and notify the team automatically that the test has been muted and they'll keep getting nagged if they don't fix it. So it's in their best interest to just jump on it and fix it. Otherwise, their Slack channel fills up with all kinds of nasty messages about you got to fix this. You're holding everybody up kind of stuff. And it's working. People, I wouldn't say they're embarrassed when they figure out that they wrote a flaky test. Wait, I wrote a flaky test, but they do seem to understand, oh, I'm blocking everybody. I'm going to fix that. It's just been really effective. People are really engaged in trying to solve it. FITO works for a team internally that we call modularization. And also another part of the team is called Patterns and Practices. And they're like an internal consultancy. And it's their job to help teach people sort of modularization of Ruby code, how to reduce complexity, but also Somebody will come into their channel and say, okay, I got this notice that I have a flaky test, but I can't figure it out.
2: And so there's some experts who can come in and help them when they yeah. do get stuck. Yeah, I wanted to clarify the intent and the sentiment, I guess, of those messages. is not shame on you, here's your test, go fix it. It's more like, hey, this is blocking everybody. So we do communicate the cost of having that test failing there so that people understand the urgency. But then there's a list resources and we kind of tell them, hey, if you need help, you can ask these people as well. Ultimately, it's not about the individual flaky flakiness being fixed. It's more about equipping people with the tools and the knowledge to resolve those, or even avoid them in the first. Or place. Even like, avoid them in the first place. Oh, yeah. I did
0: that last time and it caused flakiness. Now I'm gonna not do that this time. Yeah.
2: Do you currently use one service for uptime monitoring, another one for error tracking, another for status pages, and yet another to monitor your cron jobs and microservices? Paying for all those services separately may be costing you way more than you think. If you want to simplify your stack and lower your bills, it's time to check out HoneyBadger. HoneyBadger combines all of those services into one easy-to-use platform. It's everything you need to keep production healthy and your customers happy. Best of all, HoneyBadger is free for small teams, and setup takes as little as five minutes. Get started today at HoneyBadger.io. That is HoneyBadger.io. Thank you to Honey Badger for their continued support of the Ruby on Rails podcast.
1: wanted to kind of go back. You had mentioned how developers are able to move much more quickly and you're able to develop features and you're able to do work much more quickly. One of the things that I've found in my career is that when you can trust them and you have so much confidence in them, you can just move really fast. You can just do something and not have to think about what's going to happen. And then the test will fail and you'll know what you broke, right? But if you have flaky yeah. tests or you don't trust the tests, yeah. then you stop trusting that. And now you have to go and verify them. I imagine a lot of people are trying to just always do the right thing. People aren't trying to write tests that are flaky or non-deterministic or order dependent. Most people want to write the tests the right way. Curious what your thoughts are on getting to the other side of that, where you can really trust that the test run will catch you. And maybe if you could expand a little bit on this idea of move much more quickly because you trust the tests.
2: We have folks working with us of all levels of experience and different levels of familiarity with testing. So we'll have some folks that are very experienced at testing and they understand the value. But like you said, there are some people that are trying to do their best. They might be new to testing. And yes, encountering flaky tests can lower their confidence and their perceived value of those tests. And so definitely helping them through avoiding flaky tests, and writing more readable and more efficient, not in the way of speed, but efficient in the way of providing that safety net, some more efficient tests in that sense. You can just see how they go from, oh, this is an impediment to, oh, this is not going to be a tool in my toolbox. That is a lot of what I do in my day-to-day. Actually, I have a story that I love. Salman was saying I'm part of a group called Patterns and Practices, and folks come to us when they have any kind of question or challenge with code or tests. And I had this person come and ask, tell me that, hey, I really want to follow best practices. I really want to do the right thing and write more tests. But I have all these deadlines, and I feel like I'm always behind, and so I really don't have the time to do it. And so I asked this person, hey, can you show me? Let's go over your workflow. How are you approaching this? And just tell me more about it. And one of the things that they described was, I will write the code and I will reload the page a few times and click around and make sure it works the way I want it. And then sometimes I'll take the code and put it in the console. I'll pass different data into my function or method or object that I created and make sure that it returns the things that I want. And then once I'm happy with the code, I'll put it back in the controller or the model or whatever, and then I'll ship it. And I was like, oh, so you are testing. You're just not writing automated tests. Mm-hmm. and I spent some time pairing with this person and we wrote some tests out and they were still a little skeptical at that point, like, okay, sure. And then they just invited them, like, give it a try. And a few weeks later, this person came back and told me, oh my God, this is so much faster. I just write the tests once and then I can just run them over and over. I don't have to like go paste my code in the console anymore. It's one of my favorite stories. And in that case, the value of writing these tests was pretty immediate for that person. They had a pretty visible impact on their workflow. And for some folks, I think it takes a little bit more. It's not always that way, right? Especially yeah. if you happen to encounter a flaky test in one of your first tests.
0: That story reminded me, and your question reminded me, of an application that we worked on at our previous employer. It was a messaging system that was tightly coupled with the rest of the architecture of that application that we needed to extend. And so part of what the extension process looked like was, well, let's first tear this thing out, put it into its own service. And I don't want to talk about the tearing out, that was tough, that was hard. But the building of this new thing, we built from scratch with TDD using a design pattern that was new to us, but we latched onto it pretty quickly and it worked really well for that particular system. But because we had 100% test coverage from the beginning and because we trusted those tests, We were able to do things like the minute we had a failing test or the minute we had 99.8% coverage, we were on it. You're at 100%, it's really easy to stay at 100%. And if you're trusting those tests, then you move so fast. Even at Meraki, you've told me that there are things that you guys do, refactorings that you do, where you don't even bother to run it in the browser. You're just so confident in your test that... The test passes, you check it in, you move on.
1: That confidence is priceless. Oh,
0: absolutely.
1: There's the don't deploy on Fridays meme. That's how I want to trust my tests. I want to trust my tests to deploy at like 4.59 on a Friday.
0: Before a long weekend.
1: Before a long (laughs) weekend. Before a three-day weekend, like right now when we're recording.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to agree with you. That is very valuable. And it's something that it's a conversation I have with engineers at Miraculous time. What is it that's making you uncomfortable about checking in your code and digging into that? Maybe there are some missing tests. Maybe there's a part of that thing that you just wrote that you are not confident about. And what can we do to get more confidence on that particular part? And sometimes it is, oh, let's go do some more research or take a look at the data so we're familiar with the state of the data or something like that. In my opinion, it's all about getting confidence on your change. Whether you're reloading the browser and clicking around to make sure certain things work the way you want it, or you're writing more unit tests or integration tests. It's all the same thing, right? At the end of the day, you're going to check in your code and put it in front of your customers, and you want to make sure it behaves the way you want it. Yeah, and tests are proven to be the faster way to get there.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I know we're getting a little bit close on time, but I want to talk about these other two topics. There are features of RSpec that you advocate avoiding. Can you talk about what some of those are and why we should be avoiding them? Yeah,
0: this was a fun slide at the end of my deck where I talk about tests are hard enough to debug when they fail. Flaky tests in particular are super hard to debug when they fail. And there are a few features of RSpec that make debugging incredibly difficult. And they are things like shared contexts or shared specs. I don't know if you've ever tried to debug incantation after you've run a shared spec when one of them fails, all those numbers, it's insane trying to figure out where that test was. And shared contexts are even worse actually because now you've got mystery guests, especially if it's in another file, you've got mystery guests all the way throughout your test. You don't know where they came from. I'm also, and this is a little bit more controversial even than that, I'm not a real big fan of using lots of nested contexts because when you got let statements spread out through lots of nested contexts, it's kind of hard to tell where did that particular value for that particular test come from, unless it's really close to where that test came from. And that brings me to the most controversial piece of it, which is don't use let. Okay. Do not use let. Put the variable declaration in the test itself so that you don't have to go searching through all those nested contexts. It's right there. Yes, you're going to repeat yourself. Yes, you're going to have wet tests. You're not going to be able to dry them up like you would with let. But in the end, you're going to thank yourself when you're trying to debug that thing because it turned out that particular thing was flaky. So those are the four things that I recommend folks sort of avoid. And the minute that slide hit social media, I was inundated with a bunch of folks saying, well, why use RSpec?
1: (laughs) If, If you're not going
0: to use those features, why not use Minitest or one of the others. I'm such a fan of the RSpec DSL that I love the way it reads. I mean, I'm telling a story with RSpec that I don't feel like I can tell when I have a more code-centric test tool. Huh. The DSL is really, for me,
2: the primary reason why I use RSpec. RSpec matches in their composable, to me, not just in Ruby, but in other languages I've used, they are some of the best. Yeah.
1: I'm curious if you've tried the Mini Test spec, the version of Mini Test that is kind of to describe it I syntax.
0: I probably should because I found everything I need in our spec. So
1: the reason that I bring that up is because I've kind of had a similar conversation when I've said I don't like shared context or shared behaviors or any of that stuff. And then someone says, "Well, why don't you use Mini Test?" And my answer is, "Yeah, why don't we use?" <laughs> <laughs> But I agree with you. The RSpec, the way it reads, the way it tells a story, and especially if your output is the spec doc format where it is right. nested and giving you a tree of different sentences and different clauses, it's so easy to read that and know what it's doing without looking at it's the code. documentation. Yeah, it's automated documentation.
0: documentation that tells you what the software should be
2: doing and whether it is or not. For yeah. me personally, writing in the RSpec style, it almost helps me separate. Cognitively so different from writing your implementation that I'm writing specifications for my code right now, not writing the code itself. And sometimes it's after a single test, then I switch over to writing the code for it. I try to do TDD as much as I can. And that separation helps me. But you're right. I used test unit and mini test back in the day, like years ago, and I haven't skipped up problem. with it. Yeah.
1: I think most um, of the time, like the decisions made for you, right? You're not often starting a new thing, right? Like most often you work at a company, the company already has tests, they're probably already using RSpec. And even if you're starting a new project, oftentimes there's a cognitive advantage to just picking the same thing for the new project that you did for the old project, right? I am curious though about Cisco Meraki because you said it's the largest Rails shop that we've never heard of. I'm curious, what is Rails like at Cisco Meraki?
0: Yeah, old. (laughs) <laughs> oh. is the first word that I was used to describe it. But primary application that's written in Rails is a dashboard that you can use to manage your network equipment across the internet. So I don't have to be in the server room or in the wiring closet, plugging into the device and typing command line commands. I can just use a website and we handle sending that configuration data down to the device through tunnels to your device, through your firewall, all that. That application began as a Rails app in 2007. Oh, wow. uh, it's been That's... upgraded several times, but we are still behind. We're not on Rails 7.1. And so I think what you would describe as typical legacy application stuff in a, in a large Rails app, but the app is over 2 million lines of code. And like I said, it's over 110,000 RSpec tests. Back to the conversation about mini tests, are you gonna take 110,000 RSpec tests and convert them to mini test no,
1: no, you're <laughs> not.
0: I and mean, somebody might start a mini test suite, but it's unlikely. There's so much momentum there that it's hard to change directions when you get that large. So, a couple of things that are really cool about the app and really cool about what we're working on from a customer standpoint, it's an incredibly powerful and value-free application. People rave about the application. Internally, this is weird about me and probably about Fido as well. It has a ton of complexity, and I love that because I'm able to like sink my teeth into it and teach engineers how to undo that. It's one thing to write a greenfield application and move really fast, and I love that. I love that experience. But there's something even more satisfying about turning around something that is more complex than you'd like it to be and causing you to move slower than you'd like. I find that a really interesting intellectual challenge, and we have a lot of that. And that's the whole reason FIDO's department exists, the Patterns and Practices department, is to help teach people about avoiding complexity and simplifying the application. Yeah, I just want to say that
2: our app, it grew rapidly. It's a very successful Rails application that grew in terms of lines of code quickly, but also in terms of the number of people working.
0: We were about 200 engineers when I joined almost five years ago. It's over a thousand easily now.
2: One of the main challenges there became, if you look at a typical Rails scaffold, you have your controller, your models, you have your views, right? And typically when you're working in Rails, and in my experience in the various Rails apps that I've worked with, you don't model your app after your domain, you model it after Rails concepts. So you have models and you have controllers and you have views. And at our size and at the pace at which we're growing, that meant that people were stepping over each other it would have some new feature you want to add and spans a couple of concepts and maybe a couple of models. Where do you add it? Well, I don't know. Rails doesn't necessarily have an opinion on that, so I'm going to add it in this model here. And oops, I broke that thing that other team was working on, but I'm not even aware of that because they're a thousand miles away from me. And sometimes literally, because we are a pretty global, global. organization. And so that is one of the major challenges that we are, we've made a ton of progress against that and we're modularizing our application. And you've probably heard about this with Gusto and even Shopify. They've built tools around this and they're farther ahead of us, but we're getting there. We are restructuring our application to allow these thousand plus developers to work with each other in the same monolith without stepping over each other.
1: Nice. Yeah. Yeah. We did an episode a little while ago on Packwork, which maybe is sort of relevant, and I will also link in the show notes when this goes live. We are very over, so I want to thank you both for coming on the show. This has been such a great conversation, and I could talk about testing for hours and hours and hours, I think. We Uh, could,
0: too. Have us back. We'll talk some more.
1: Yeah, we should definitely do that. My final question is really quickly, can you tell us where people can find you online?
0: Yeah, primarily Cisco Meraki. If you're interested in us, I think you're going to link to the careers page for us. Mm Mm-hmm. That's the easiest there. Me, I'm predominantly on LinkedIn and Mastodon now. Alan at Ruby Social and a Uber on LinkedIn. I'm not on the other social media sites. Same.
2: Okay. I'm Fito at Ruby Social. And on LinkedIn, I think I'm Fito Fonsastro. Hopefully, you'll put a link to my <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> LinkedIn too. So, yeah. And then Alan does a lot of blogging and sometimes guest writer there uh, so you can find some of our stuff in there too
0: yeah that's the code gardener the.codegardener.com
1: okay awesome we will include links to all of that in the show notes so be sure to scroll down past the controls of your podcast app and check those links out I want to thank you both again for coming on the show this has been the Ruby on Rails Podcast. It was a pleasure getting to talk with Alan and Fito. For those of you who are interested in learning more about Cisco Meraki, the show notes contains links to their careers page along with Alan and Fito's LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to connect. And if you're interested in learning more about how to avoid flaky tests or remove complexity from your code, check out Fito and Alan's talks. I've also linked to the Code Gardener blog and first try software, where they link to all of their open source work, which you can also check out. Also, we're starting something new on the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have comments about this episode, send an email to comments at therubyonrailspodcast.com and we'll respond to some of them in a future show. Thanks to Paul, our wonderful editor over at Peachtree Sound for making us sound like professionals. And thank you for listening. You're a gem.
0: You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.